time. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. You are uh, good in so many ways. God, we see some of those, but there are others that you're doing in ways you're loving us that we don't know. We won't know until um, the new heavens and the new earth when things are revealed, the ways that you have blessed and provided and protected. We pray for those that are sick and struggling among us. I know that there are many with ailments and injuries and difficulties uh, recovering. I, I think of Tony Holliday and his uh, long struggle and battle now with, with cancer and uh, all the issues that he's facing because of that. Lord, we pray for your care for him, for his rehab to continue, for him to be able to go home soon and, and be enjoying with Diane. We do pray for the offerings. Thank you for this time of refreshment. God, would you use it to, to uh, bond them together as a family, but also to give Ryan and Leanne space to to, to think and to dream about what you're calling them to, to reinvigorate them for the work of ministry, to bring refreshment as they have labored so faithfully um, these last five years and more uh, in serving uh, this church and beyond this church. Lord, we pray for them. Be with them. And may they know your unique presence. Pray for uh, the Long family, for Bennett's wife and children for their whole family that has been uh, touched by this tragedy. Um, words really do fail us here. Um, but we, um, we believe the scripture that says that you are near to the brokenhearted and that you comfort the, those that are hurting. God, and as the people of God, would we, um, would we weep with those who weep? Would we be near to those who are suffering? We pray for your grace in an unimaginable way uh, for that family. We're also called to rejoice. Rejoice of the, the good news of um, Grace and David Warnke and their baby Shiloh. Lord, what a blessing, what a gift. And Brian and Renee recently had a baby, Thomas, Lord, we pray for him. We thank you for new life, the gift of life, that you are the giver, and may we as a church be faithful to come alongside, to, to love them, support them, encourage them in uh, the raising of their children, and we pray for those babies that they would grow and know the loving God that you are. There are other needs financially, I know many are struggling uh, vocationally, there are challenges, marital challenges. Uh, Lord, we, we know the needs are there. Lord, would you be near your people in a particular way? We pray. Our greatest need, uh, we confess, is to hear from you. Our words uh, fail. They fall short um, of what your word does. So would you Bring your word to us now. Would you use it to, to challenge us, to convict us, to encourage us in whatever way you see fit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we're chapter 6 of Ephesians. We're making our way. We've been at it for a while now. Um, what we, if we just show up, and this is your first week, you, you plop in, you're like, what are these verses about? They're very practical, these instructions. Um, we want to back up and remember that 
Um, Paul has been arguing in Ephesians that the gospel changes everything. There's nothing untouched. I remember somewhere, I think I was in high school, seeing a, you know, the, the, the pie diagram where you got like slices of the pie and one slice is, you know, your, your, your job or your, if you're a student, your, your work, your schoolwork, and one slice is your family and one is your, your recreation and then one is your faith and that's not how the Bible talks about our life. Um, it's not, faith isn't sort of a slice of the pie. Or, or maybe, you know, uh, uh, you know, you think about uh, people say, you know, it's, it's family first, I mean, excuse me, it's faith first, it's family second, you know, then it's you know, football third, or, or I feel like I'm channeling Tim Tebow or something. It's, uh, it's vocate your, your job third, you know, and then fourth, it's whatever. And, and that's better, right? That's better. There, there's a sense of ordering of priorities. But even that falls short of how the Bible talks about our faith, the New Testament. It's not like there's a priority order of it. Is the church is sort of this piece of our, our faith is this sort of piece of our life. It's Ephesians has told us we are grounded, we are united with Christ in him. That so much so that we no longer live, that Christ lives within us. And now our whole being is consumed with new life in Christ. We belong to him. We are his and he is ours. So much so that everything we do, whether it's, you know, football or family or whatever, fireworks or Whatever else F word you can come up with, not that F word, but whatever F word you can come up with, whatever word you can come up with, it's grounded. Man, I wish I could not say that. Can you, can you unwind that, rewind that? Um, whatever your life is about, it's not disordering, it's everything. The gospel claims everything. Christ takes allegiance over everything. And that's our title of our series. He's the cosmic Christ. He empowers the church, we live, whatever we do, distinctively Christian. And so today, as we talk about it, we'll continue the train of Ephesians that the Christ has conquered through his death and resurrection, and he's empowered us as Christians as we collectively live the gospel in everyday life. We push back the darkness. We push back the fall we push back by gaining ground to the world and the life. And you say, well, the world looks broken. We see the, the troubles, the struggle. Uh, we feel powerless. How do we move into that with any hope? It's Christians as a community of faith embodying the gospel, believing the gospel, living out in everyday life. So, this is radical because the gospel means everything. Would you rise as we read God's word to us? Um, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, this is where we find ourselves this morning. It says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or he is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Um, so today, a unique passage, we're going to talk about the specific relationship with those that are in authority and those that are under authority, in authority and under authority, but we have to address the, the elephant in the room, right? I mean, this is a passage that's talking about the uh, slavery, 
This word bondservant or doulos is slave. It's talking about slave and master. So first thing we have to do before we look at the particular commands, we're going to address briefly, and we don't have a lot of time, um, this issue of master and slave, perspective on slavery. Let's just say this, because this is a hang-up for, for many that come to the Bible. Um, the, the, there is no place, zero room for any form of slavery. It is a deep uh, moral wrong. Um, very uh, clear. By slavery, we mean that where one person owns or possesses another person at the deprivation of their freedom, right? That's slavery. To own, to possess, to control the rights of has no place in a Christian worldview. It is a serious violation of the imago Dei, that we are made every single human being in the image of God. That's what makes humans distinct from, say, animals. I know many of we love our animals, but they're not made in the image of God. Every human life has full value and dignity by virtue of being made in God's image. We need to name that. And it is a tragedy that slavery in all kind of forms has been a part of our, the history of the world. But it's been a part of the history of the church. It's been a part of American history. And that should be deeply grievous to us. There's no place for it. Uh, slavery has existed throughout the history of the world in violating and oppressing people. And the sad reality of it is, is that slavery exists today. Do you know that? Um, the, the, the numbers... Uh, from this uh, group, Walk Free, that done, has done research since 2022, 49.6 million slaves today. Think about that. Almost 50 million. Many of them are, are labor bonded servants, are slaves, um, places like Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh, Nepal, a lot of forced labor. But we know there's lots of, of sex slaves, of women. Uh, that 50 million a quarter. So, I'm not a math person, 12, 12.5% is uh, children, children and slaves. Think about that. Is, that. is that sickening to you? There's that new movie, Sound of Freedom. I have not seen it. Maybe some of you have seen it. It speaks to this issue of, of trafficking. Hey, young people, you know, you, you're, you're being told, I spoke this last week, what to, what to love and what to live for. <laughs> Uh, what to find your passion. How about take that cause up? How about be passionate about that? How about give your life to something about uh, important? Maybe that's it. That, that is a, a gross number and it should trouble us. To whatever level we have an opportunity and it happens in our own city, um, we should work against that form of evil in the world. There is uh, no place, no endorsement uh, for slavery in any form throughout the ages um, or present day. Does the Bible condone it? The short answer is no. Second thing I want to say about slavery is that Paul here is speaking into his current context, okay? He's speaking into his circumstances. He is speaking uh, how to live in what is and not what ought to be. It, it is an accommodation to the current context. Um, 
what's the current context? Uh, one commentator says, it's been computed that the Roman Empire, so this is a vast land, right? Think, uh, you know, from Spain, from, from the Atlantic Ocean, Atlantic Ocean all the way through to, to India, uh, through Asia Minor, North Africa, the whole area. There's some 60, in, in this first century, some 60 million slaves, probably 35% or more of the population. The whole kind of Roman Empire worked off of slavery. John Stott says, Slaves constituted the overwhelming majority of the workforce and includes not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people, including doctors, teachers, administrators. Slavery was widespread into every sector. Some of you doctors and residents and uh, teachers feel like that sometimes, right? You feel like you're a slave to the hospital. It was everywhere. How did slaves come to be? They were, some were inherited, some were purchased, some were uh, acquired of bad debt. Many of them were debt slaves. The most common slave in the first century was prisoners of war. You, you, you defeat an army, Roman Empire defeat, they capture them, they take their people as slaves. Um, there was not so much a slave problem in the world because slavery was just assumed. That's just what was a part of the context. And so it's hard for us to grasp how Paul can give instructions into such a horrific institution, and yet, again, he's speaking to what is with a small, marginalized group of Christians here at Ephesus on how to live given the current context. Uh, John read a prayer from Tim Keller, a quote from Tim Keller. He, He talks about how Paul does this a lot, not just with this issue, but he says this. Keller says, It's remarkable that in all of all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. Did you hear that? Not once. Paul prays for his friends, those he loves, those in ministry, and he never prays for their circumstances to radically change. He prays for them in the circumstances that they might have a different attitude or posture that he might provide. And so Paul takes a similar approach here within this structure, this corrupt social structure Slavery. Final thing on slavery uh, perspective. Paul gives uh, zero theological basis for slavery. That's one of the great tragedies of the American story is that often Christians would try to use the Bible to condone it. Paul doesn't do that. We've just read, he's, he's been talking in Ephesians 5 about how the gospel structures our relationships in the family. And in doing that with husbands and wives and children, he gives a theological basis, right? Christ loved the church, so husbands love this way. Wives respond this way because there's a theological grounding. He does not do this for slavery whatsoever. His only concern is to provide perspective on how Christians are to live within this empire-wide Social structure with these group of Christians in Ephesus. Uh, there's a couple ways to overthrow something. Paul does challenge. You'll see that the commands are radical. But he doesn't do that in an overt way. He doesn't try to overthrow the, ma- the mighty Roman Empire with a few small Christians in this one little located place. But he talks about the relationship in a subversive way. He's, he's undermining. If Slave owners and the slaves would actually live in this way. It would cut against the system that's established. It would undo it in time. It's covert. Other places, Paul speaks of human dignity and the value of freedom. 1 Corinthians 7, 21. 
Were you a bondservant when you were called to Christ? Were you a slave when you were called to Christ? Do not be concerned about that, he goes on to say. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. And that's one distinction from first century slavery to the transatlantic slavery is that most slaves were freed. Many of them by the age of 30. They could purchase their own freedom or they were emancipated in large numbers. In fact, at one point, uh, the Roman Empire, uh, Emperor had to stop the emancipation of slaves because so many were being freed. So there is distinctions. There's not a justification for it by any means. But Paul says, if you can, avail yourself of that. And in the book of Philemon, uh, some of you know that book, short little book, Paul, he speaks to Philemon, who is a Christian uh, who owns slaves, okay? And Onesimus is one of the slaves, has run away, and Paul meets Onesimus in, in Rome, and apparently Onesimus is converted through his ministry, and Paul's going to send him back to Philemon. And so Paul writes this little book to Philemon and says, receive Onesimus back, how? Not as a bondservant, not as a slave, but what? As a brother. Major power distinction here. And Paul says, he's a, convert, he's a brother. Receive him back, Philemon, as a brother. Do you see how if you embrace that way of being, it would eradicate this idea of slavery? So Paul writes to these Christians, and he is casting a vision for how Masters and slaves um, should live distinctly Christian given their context. And yes, it is in some ways an accommodation, but it's one that's working to undermine the system. Um, I'll give you an example in a modern world. Uh, you know, you hear missionaries all the time that'll, that'll go to uh, foreign lands and they go into polygamous cultures, right? They go to Africa, and there's a tribe, and there's a, there's a husband, and he's got ten, ten wives and, you know, tons of kids. Well, the husband converts, the wife converts, the kids converts. Well, what do you do? And the Bible's very clear, right? One man, one woman, marriage. But in that context, in that social context, those wives and children are dependent upon what? That, that husband, that man. So the gospel changes everything, but how does it change that context? Does he immediately divorce all the wives but one? Leaving the wife, other wives, other women and children destitute? I don't know. Does he keep, keep being married, but the relationship changes and only one of them's the wife and the rest of them are there, but he still provides? Maybe. So there's ethical issues that have to be worked out. But we know what happens in the next generation, right? The gospel changes. It can't continue because God's called one man and one woman, right? Together. So this cannot continue to go on. The gospel changes the way we do it, but sometimes it's progressive. Sometimes it's slower. It takes time to, un to overthrow the radical system. Slavery cannot continue, but as uh, slave owners treat slaves as brothers, um, the situation, the institution should be gone, should be eradicated. Paul says in this context that slaves and masters must, must behave radically different. Okay, I feel like we need to address that because if we don't, uh, some of us will be hung up on that the whole time. And there's so much more to say. There's obviously a lot written on this. Um, but there is no endorsement for 
any type of slavery. And yet Paul is talking to a particular place, a particular time, and he's talking about how we live in that moment. So what does he say? Um, these instructions he's going to give, uh, I do think they're not directly applicable to us. Now, if you were in a current slave situation, it would be. I uh, hope that's not the case in this room. But it applies to us sort of in general principle of those that are in authority and those that are under authority. One commentator says, if Paul were to say, slaves never leave your masters because they own you, then this would not be applicable to the church. But he doesn't say that. Instead, Paul's instructions all have to do with attitude, with manner of service, with motivation. And so they have applicability in authority structures and relationships. So who would this apply to? It would apply to, it would apply to employers, employees. It would apply to those that are in positions of leadership and those that are under leadership. It would apply to places in society where there's strong structure, uh, 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 the military, clear Right, order and structure. Those that are in prison that have a clearly restraint, that have a structure. So really, if you're in a situation where you're over people or you're under people, the principles here, I think, can apply to you uh, in a very real way. So, first, a word to those that are under authority. Under authority. So if you have a boss today, or you have a supervisor, or you have a program director you have whatever it may be, you're under authority. What can we learn here that could be applied um, to us? There's verses 5 yeah, through 9, or 5 through 8. Four things I want you to see here about those under authority. First, you're to treat, Paul says, treat your supervisors with deep respect. Verse 5, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. In this context, the supervisor, the the employer is over you, and so you are to treat them. That phrase, fear and trembling, is common throughout the Bible. It means to respect and to honor their authority. Authority is God-given. Government authority is God-given. Some of us don't like that, right? <laughs> authority is God-given. If we're in that place, we have a boss or someone over, we are to treat them with respect and honor and dignity, to show respect to that person. Just like we said that husbands are to love in a certain way to their wives and wives are to respect their husbands in a certain way, irrespective of how the other party's doing. Husbands are to love even if the wife is not respectful, right? Wives are to respect even if the husband is not loving. It applies here as well. Those under authority are to respect and honor those above them in authority. Is not saying that the person in authority is a good person or is doing a great job. It doesn't say respect those in authority that are really great people. It says, if we find ourselves in this place, we are to respect. We are to honor. It's not contingent. Um, I know this can be hard, particularly if you have a bad boss, right? One commentator quotes the phrase that soldiers so often say, salute the rank and not the person, right? You may have heard that, some of our military people. Around here, sometimes the person above you is not a great person, and yet you're, you're, you're to honor them and their God-given authority. That's the first thing. Treat supervisors with respect. Second thing, do your work with a pure heart and a good attitude before the Lord. Look at verse 5. Uh, with a sincere heart, serve as you would Christ, 
He goes on in verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. When you go to work, when you go, when you go to study for school, do it unto the Lord. In your heart, you are to labor and serve as you would Christ. That does not mean uh, slave owners were not Christ. Your boss is not Christ. But you are to serve faithfully as unto Christ, your ultimate authority. Um, you know, the workplace can be one of the most toxic environments, right? And, you know, I mean, you talk about um, the teacher's lounge. We got any teachers around here? You know, the things that are said. Um, you know, you talk about um, nurses' station. You know, you hear stories of nurses talking and gossiping or, or wherever. The, the water cooler. Do people, you know, you hear, do people have water coolers? Like, is that a thing still? I think channel in the office, right? They Like, the water, I don't know. If you have a water cooler, I don't know. Wherever you gather at work, it's the place often of gossip, of slander, talking bad about people, complaining and moaning, right? bickering, that's what happens, right? And it's often about your leadership. Can you believe he? Can you believe that? We, we get this going. It's not, there's no place for that for Christians. We are to work from a sincere heart as we work for the Lord. Pure heart and attitude flows. Some of you think, well, if you, understood, if you knew my job, you know, my boss is terrible. My situation is terrible. You know, and, and there's nothing I'm saying here that's, this is where there is a distinction from slavery. There's nothing here saying that you have to stay in a bad work environment, right? Particularly if it's abusive. Look, get out, find a different job if you're able to, right? Move, move out of that situation. Um, but while you're there, you're realizing that you're serving that situation, but you're not ultimately serving the, your superiors, you're serving the Lord, you can be in a bad situation with a good heart or a bad job, not your ideal work environment, and you can do it unto the Lord. I love the quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He talks about working hard unto the Lord and no matter what you do, and he says this, you've heard this before, if a man is called to, 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 a street, to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets as well so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Isn't that great? You're like, that's a crappy job. No one wants that job. How can you do, how can you have that posture? If it's just about your boss, you're probably not going to sweep streets that way, right? Or work at your cubicle or study for your test. But if ultimately you're working with a pure heart to the Lord, it changes everything, right? Everything matters. How you do your chores at home, kids. Everything matters to the Lord. Sincere heart to serve the Lord himself. A final implication of this pure heart is that it says we do it with a pure heart doing the will of God. This means that there are times when, just like in marriage or just like with the government or just like if you're in a church that's a corrupt there are times where, um, as someone under authority, you don't obey those in authority, right? If they ask you to use something illegal or something that's harmful to someone else, uh, there, there are limitations because your ultimate authority is not the person above you, not your program director. The ultimate authority is the Lord. And so you are respectful, there's dignity, uh, there's honor, but you're working from the heart 
and you're doing it to the Lord. And so to the degree that it is, uh, and that doesn't mean just because you disagree with a policy, you don't have to do it. But if you're doing something harmful, there is a limit to that. Okay, uh, third, to those under authority, work hard whether your supervisor is watching or not. He says, uh, serve as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service or as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, or other translations say, not serving to be seen. Again, we're serving not uh, just to be seen for the reward, but we're, being, we're serving the Lord uh, honorably, not just for the pat on the back. And there's nothing wrong with the pat on the back. There's nothing wrong with working hard to pursue a promotion or to get a raise. That's not a bad thing to do. But ultimately, we're serving beyond that. Whether we're serving in the church, we're serving uh, in a school, we're serving at whatever vocation in your family, we're serving not as eye service. You, you know what I mean? You're, you're not serving just for the good impression. This is me. Um, anybody done any of those like boot camp classes or like work, workout type classes, you know? And obviously I don't do a lot of them, but I have done them. Um, you know, and uh, the, the instructor, instructor walks around the whole time. Well, I'm that guy. That, I mean, when, when they're not looking, I mean, when they're looking at me, burpees, push-ups, I'm just killing it, you know. I mean, I'm just like, ah, come on, guys, just screaming, you know. Like, and then as soon as that instructor turns around and walks away, I'm just like, you know, I'm just taking a breather, right. And then they turn back and immediately like, hit the deck and start working hard, right. That, that's working uh, for eye service. That's working to make an impression that you're really working harder than you really are. That's what it says not to do that. It's not to do that. Uh, it's not to be uh, playing your phone uh, on social media at work, uh, wasting time, and your boss comes in, and you're like, oh, and you start getting to work. That's what it means, don't do that. Everyone's like, guilty, right? It means that we work honorably. The gospel has so impacted you and changed you that in this context you're in, as an employee, you work honorably to the Lord with excellence. You work to Him. You work faithfully. Not just to be seen. Students, you work to the Lord. He says, we are bond servants of Christ. We are, you're not a slave to man, you are a slave to Christ. He is your owner. Now, he's a good owner. <laughs> he's benevolent. He calls you friend. He calls you son and daughter. But we belong to him, so work heartily to him, even if no one sees it. We're to work not to please others. Finally, to those under authority, he says this, Trust the Lord in your work, knowing that the Lord rewards his people. Look at verse 7 and 8. Uh, he says, Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or, or free. This principle goes across the board. That we are, to, uh, the, the, we are to work heartily and we can take confidence that the Lord sees and that the Lord rewards us. You know, the Bible talks about rewards. God sees your work. For you right now, some of you are in jobs that you don't like or in stages you don't like. Like, I wish this would be over. Just wait, next year I'll get through with this rotation or this thing and, I'll, and you don't like it. Or you're in your job, you don't like it. The Lord sees you. The Lord rewards you. He rewards you in, in this life. There are blessings and benefits. But not, sometimes not. 
at least not the way you want it. That's one of the, the, great, uh, the great benefits of uh, the African-American Christian tradition is that there is so much written, all the Negro spirituals, all the language of those songs that birthed out of people that were oppressed in slavery, they had this in their mind, right? Our, we're not working for this master who's abusive. We're ultimately working for the Lord, and he will reward us. If you've read those, the, those hymns, those songs, those spiritual songs, they're looking for Jordan, crossing over, the, the language of Moses and deliverance and freedom, and not, those often didn't come in this life, but there is a hope of eternal reward. This is where we're going. Now, it's easy for me to say that. It's much more difficult to live it, to be in that context, to be oppressed in that way. And yet, those songs and that tradition points us to what this text says. That the Lord sees each of us in our plight and that he rewards us. Even in our oppression or subjugation, there is eternal reward. Colossians 3 says this very thing. Listen to all of us. Whatever you do, whether you're retired, you, you got the low-end job, you're flipping burgers somewhere. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Changes everything, doesn't it? Changes everything. Many are under authority, but there are some in this room that are in authority. Some of you in this room, you're, you're head of departments, you're head of programs, you're bosses, you're employers. The final verse is to you. What does he say to you? Uh, verse 9, masters, do the same and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is, is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Notice that the words, it's, it's only one verse to those in, in authority. Why is that? Well, most of the people Paul's talking to are those under authority. Christians in this moment uh, were not at the top of society. They had these jobs. They had these place of plight. They have the down places. They're low. But also, he says, that, that first phrase, that little clause there in, uh, with commas, masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them. That is a radical idea. Paul gave these instructions to those that are under authority. And now he says to masters, those that are in power. Nobody speaks to power like this in the first century. Paul says, do the same thing to them. What does that mean? What did he just say? Treat them with respect. Right? Do it with a sincere, pure heart. Do it for the Lord. Do it for an eternal reward. Treat them in appropriate ways. Do the same thing. This is the gospel way. Do you see how if you actually embodied that, slavery would be impossible? If you treated them like a brother and in love and in care, respect and dignity, there's no concept of owning or restricting. Do you see how that works? The gospel subverts. It subverts. Imagine a, a slave owner. Uh, so, you know, um, you're, in, you're in Ephesians and you're, you own slaves and you become a Christian. It's radical. All you know, your whole context, your whole world, slaves run everything. All the, from high-end jobs to low-end jobs, this is the way the culture works. And you've known one train of mind and now you get these commands that you're supposed to treat and operate with those under you in this kind of disposition. Radical. Radical. Respect, 
sincere heart. Paul specifically says, cut out the threatening. Now, this isn't new to the first century. This is true today. Those in authority often try to control by threats, right? By threats. You lose your job. You lose a pay cut. You won't get the promotion. Do what I want you to do. It's a way of controlling or manipulating the situation. Paul says that's not what Christians do. We don't do that in the household. Those that are leading their household, we don't operate that way. We don't operate that in business. My, my classroom is not working well, so let's threaten them. No. There are consequences, right, students, for, dis, uh, for disobeying in class. But Paul says, eh, we don't, Christians, that's not how we do it. We don't threaten. Notice the motivation for the authority. He says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Those in authority, if you right now are a boss or you're over a program, you know why you treat those under you uh, with, the, with respect and dignity? Because you'll have the same boss. You'll have the same master. Now, in this earthly world, you're in a different place on the, on the pecking order. But we don't look down and treat down to those under because of where they are, their education, whatever, because y'all have the same authority. It is the Lord Jesus directly. God himself is your master as he is yours. And it says this, he's not like us because we show favoritism all the time, right? If someone comes in here now that's a celebrity or, or someone that's well known, we would probably all rush and treat them with special. Come sit here talk this way. I hope we wouldn't do that, but we would be tempted to do that for sure. Paul says, he's not like us. God's not like that. He shows no partiality, favoritism. Can't manipulate God. You can't control him. In fact, not only does he show no favoritism, the, the, tr- the thrust of scripture points us to God's heart is for the broken and the downcast and the lowly. Whether you are in authority, whether you are under authority, um, the gospel changes how you relate. And the beautiful thing about the gospel and the beautiful thing about God is that he not only uh, tells us what to do, these are practical instructions, but he demonstrates how to do it. He, tell, he says it, but he does it. Philippians 2, we'll finish with this, Philippians 2, 5. Um, says this, Paul says, have this mind, Christians, among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is what you're to do, Christians, right? He's already talked about humility. He's talked about unity. You're to have this mindset, Christians. Let me show you the place that this has been demonstrated. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, was God equal with the Father in glory and power. That's our doctrine of the Trinity, He's equal with God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he let go of power. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's doulos, a slave. Christ, equal with God, eternal son, let go, surrendered, emptied himself, became a slave, born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by what? By becoming obedient You see that? Slay obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Those under authority, this is what you're supposed to do. 
right? You're supposed to take this posture. You're supposed to be humble. You're supposed to have respect and honor and to obey the commands. Jesus has done that to the ultimate degree. The Father purposed salvation and the Son agreed and submitted himself. But how does the Father? What about those in authority? Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does is, what is the, what is the, uh, those under authority do? We labor for the Lord, and what happens? We get rewarded. God, whether our boss sees or not, God sees us. And when he sees us, he will reward us, hopefully in blessings in this life, but certainly in eternity. The son submits himself to the father, and the father sees it, and he just lavishes him. The name, it means to be super exalted, hyper exalted. He took Jesus, who is eternal son, and exalted him, that everybody in the whole earth would see him and glory in him. And the reward is us, his church, purchased for him, belong to him. Authority and those under authority. It's not just words to, the, to our God. It's actually demonstrated. He displays the gospel as the Father and the Son trip over one another to give the other glory and honor and respect and praise. So if you're in, if we're to honor those above us in authority, we do so by imitating the Son. If you are in authority and you respect and reward those below you, in some way you imitate the heart of the Father and show his heart for the world. Boy, wouldn't that change if we related in the workplace like that? Or in the school like that? Or in our home like that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is uh, living and active. It is uh, far more than we could imagine. It changes us. It, it, it disrupts us. We still have questions about this slave thing. Um, but we see that Paul has done something radical. And that he is pushing on the culture. He is changing everything. Nothing stays the same because of our relationship, our connection to Christ. Oh God, may we see it, may we understand it, may you give us the power by your spirit to do what we cannot do. And that is to live in a way that honors you in all we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.